This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. pigeon. Um, when, I, when I say that, I don't mean to imply that uh, I'm learning to speak. I tried to read the, at our deep group last night the Hawaiian Pigeon Bible, and I just totally butchered it. Um, I sound super howly um, trying to read that thing. It's, it's very cringy, actually, to listen to me try to read that out loud. Um, so I'm not necessarily learning to speak it. So what I mean is I'm still learning to understand it. Um, and I've been in Hawaii for four and a half years, uh, going on five, and I feel like, by and large, I get it. Like, I can understand it. Uh, when I first came to the bridge about two and a half years ago, and I heard Mendel speak, um, I, had to, I had to really dial in. Uh, it was fast, and it's kind of like listening to a new language. Um, and so I had to listen intently to be able to follow what he was saying sometimes. Now, it's quite a bit easier. And one of the pigeon phrases that I heard uh, early on when I moved here was, if can, can, if no can, no can, right? Uh, or to put it in more howly terms, what I think that means is, if you can, okay. Uh, and if you can't, not, no problem. Is that what it means? Right? Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. Um, and so <laughs> today's sermon is kind of a play on that pigeon phrase with a little bit of a churchy spin, okay? If can't, can't. I'll explain. I'll come back to that later. It'll make a little bit more sense. If can't, can't. All right. Um, but I will say it's connected to the next song in Luke's gospel, uh, which we call Zechariah's Canticle, uh, or as it's often referred to in Latin as the Benedictus. Uh, like the Magnificat that we looked at last week, Mary's Magnificat, Benedictus is a Latin term. It's a, a Latin compound word, and it means something like blessing. Uh, by the way, if you read the Latin translation of the scriptures, it's called the Latin Vulgate, or Latin Vulgate, as some people call it. The first word of Mary's canticle in Latin is Magnificat in Latin. That's why it's called Mary's Magnificat. And Zechariah's song, his first word is, wait for it, Benedictus. Uh, that's why it's called the Benedictus in Latin. That's why these songs, that's why they get these titles, where they get their terms from, from Latin. So later we're going to look at Zechariah's canticle or his short song. But before we do, I want to help frame things just a little bit, um, give you a little bit of context. And I want to say a few words about this guy, Zechariah. First, I should say that uh, Zechariah's song, if you take it and you actually sit it right next to Mary's and like place them in parallel, they're very, very similar. A lot of themes and words and ideas that cross over. Um, I, can, I can't go into a lot of the comparisons today, but there's a lot of overlap between Mary's song and Zechariah's. Second, I want to make a point about our author, Luke. Luke. Um, in particular, I want to remind you that Luke wrote two works in the New Testament. They're called, what? Come on, don't leave me hanging here. Luke wrote what? Luke and Acts, thank you. Um, whew, getting nervous there for a minute. Um, all right, uh, he wrote Luke and Acts, that's very right. Um, so the first five books of the New Testament, you know, go like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So the Gospel of John, for some reasons, I can't really go into today, it separates Luke's first writing from Luke's second writing. And the reality is, uh, we can and are supposed to treat Luke's first writing together with his second writing. We're supposed to treat them like two volumes, a two-volume work. Volume one is the Gospel of Luke. Volume two is Acts. Um, or if you combine them as a set, we call them Luke-Acts. Okay? So today we're in volume one of Luke's writing, Luke's Gospel. And in writing his Gospel, here's the thing. Luke, he tells us right out of the gate that he's gathered all sorts of information. And he says he wants to start his story at the beginning. 
And so part of his agenda, as far as telling the story of Jesus goes, is to root it in Israel's history. And he wants to show how everything is sort of reaching its zenith in the incarnation and beyond. Early on then, we're not introduced, um, we're not only introduced to Mary, Jesus' mother, but also his aunt, Elizabeth, and her husband, Jesus' uncle, Zechariah. Luke tells us that this guy named Zechariah was a priest, that he was part of the priestly lineage in Judaism. His lineage then was rooted deeply in Israelite history. Now, it's a really important detail, okay? In Luke 1.5, um, it tells us that Zechariah was from this priestly order of Abijah, which significantly was one of the priestly orders with the least status out of all of them. And we learn from Luke 1.39 as well that Zechariah is from the hill country of Judea. He's a, he's a country boy. Okay, which tells us that he wasn't a priest in the city of Jerusalem. He wasn't a city boy. So Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are kind of like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. They're said to have childbearing difficulties. Elizabeth, though, becomes pregnant in her old age, as you know. Now, despite his rural side, which probably denotes some type of poverty and certainly low social status, and despite being from this lower rank, nondescript priestly order, Zechariah in the text, Luke goes out of his way to tell us that he's righteous and that he's blameless, which also sounds quite a bit like Abraham. So in Luke's gospel, here's the point I'm getting to. In Luke's gospel, only a handful of people are spoken of in that way, described as righteous. That includes Jesus at his death. And here's the real eye-opening point about that. In Luke's gospel, Zechariah, as a regular or ordinary priest, is distinguished from the chief priests or the high priests. That's super, super significant. Luke, like the other gospel writers, in fact, tells us the high priests and the chief priests, they had social, they had high social status, had great political clout. They enjoyed religious favor and prestige among the people. Nevertheless, they're not described as righteous, you see. Never, not once. In fact, they're depicted and described as corrupt despite their social status, despite their political clout, despite their uh, pre religious prestige and favor. From Luke's point of view, and Luke's speaking on behalf of God, so from God's point of view too, these high priests were corrupt and unrighteous. They were to blame for many of the problems in the Jerusalem temple and in the city of Jerusalem, but overall in Judaism at the time. So my argument is this, is that Luke makes it a point in his story to tell us that this regular, ordinary priest, Zechariah, is not like the chief priests of his day. He's different. He's righteous. They're not. He's blameless. They're not. And for that reason, at the start of the story, we don't have a Jerusalem high priest entering into the picture. We have a rural, regular, low-status priest and his family functioning as God's representatives. So Zechariah's family, especially his son, John the Baptizer, find themselves in these roles where they are the ones small kind, to bring Israel back to God and to turn the righteous, uh, turn the unrighteous toward righteousness. One scholar put it this way, Zechariah's son, John, will usher in a national revival that would bring radical individual moral changes similar to the righteous character of Zechariah. Or let me put that differently for you. John, the baptizer, is going to tell the nations Jesus is coming. And if they want to be righteous like his daddy, Zechariah is righteous, then they need to follow Jesus. That's what this means. Here's the other thing. When Mary realized she was pregnant, she runs to Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife. She goes to Zechariah's house. Of course, Elizabeth, they find, is pregnant too. And the women, they find comfort in one another. Zechariah, he doesn't yet know about this, that his wife's pregnant. So one day when he's in the temple performing a ceremony, he's visited by this angel Gabriel, messenger of God, who tells him 
right, your wife's pregnant. And he's shocked. He can't believe it. And because of that, the angel pronounces a period of silence over him. You see it here in Luke 1.20. Gabriel says to Zechariah, and now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Why are men always talking, by the way, about women being silent in church and they never talk about this kind of thing, huh? Um, he says, because, he says, you'll not be able to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. For the duration of the, of the pregnancy, Zechariah is silenced. And near the end of the pregnancy, when John's about to be born, People are asking Zechariah, what are you going to name him? What are you going to name him? We all do the same thing. And bucking the tradition of his family and just local tradition, Zechariah does what the angel says. He doesn't name him after himself. He doesn't name him after uh, John's grandpa, Zechariah the third, for instance. He names him John, which in Hebrew means something like the one that God gives or he whom God gives. Or, as it's often put, God's gracious gift. That's what John means. And it's a little ironic because the name Zechariah in Hebrew means he whom God remembers. So you, you think about this. A man in Zechariah's day was remembered how? Through his lineage, through his children. In fact, they tended to bear his name. And uh, so Zechariah's name means he whom God remembers. In this case, it's as if Zechariah, by doing what the angel is saying, says, you know, none of this is about me. It's not about my memory. It's not about my legacy. It's not about carrying on my name. It's about carrying on the legacy of God's name. Despite the meaning of my name, God remembers, I don't need to be remembered. I'm willing to be forgotten so long as God is remembered. That's kind of what's going on here. It's a great act of humility. Indeed, it goes right along with the description of being righteous and blameless. And it's one of those things that just makes me wonder, like, how much we often think along those lines. How much are we willing to be forgotten in order that Christ might take precedent? You know, I, I've been in my, I've been in church for decades now i've been in this church game this church life for decades now and some of y'all have been at it longer than i have i've seen the best in church people and i've seen the worst in church people i've seen the people in churches who go full throttle i've seen people who are lazy i've seen those who serve passionately and those who think it's their job to complain um, I've seen people who build up the church and people who criticize. They think criticism is their spiritual gift. Um, I've seen those who are willing to be forgotten so that Christ gets the glory. And I've seen people who want their name, their imprint, their DNA stamped on everything. The buildings, the communion trays, libraries, everything. So that they can get some of the glory too. I want to challenge us not to be like that, the latter, right? We know this isn't about us. That's pretty elementary, but it's so easy to forget. It's about Jesus. And the minute that we make it about anything other than him being at the center, we're only inviting headache and hardship and trouble. This Advent season, while it's characterized as a time of waiting, I think that's something we can't afford to wait on. No waiting on putting Jesus at the center, right? Uh, take after Zechariah here. Let's, uh, let's not live a life where we're seeking to be remembered. It's, it's not about us being remembered, but here's another irony. As Zechariah was willing to not be remembered, he actually is remembered. And so is his song. And here we are, thousands of years later, remembering Zechariah and talking about him and thinking about him looking to him for some spiritual guidance and some insight. So we're going to turn to this guy's song, this ancient song, and we're going to see what it says. It begins like this. I love it. It says, um, his, this is John's, right? His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. We're just going to just walk through this song. Now, 
I want to make a note here that when it says he prophesied, okay, it doesn't mean he's predicting the future. Let's get that straight. Very, very important. It means he's making a truth claim, okay? To prophesy in Scripture is often to call people to repentance. In a moment, we're going to see the truth claim that he makes. And quite significantly, the truth claim isn't one of his own accord. He's not the source of it. It's the Holy Spirit, it says here, is the source. It's the Spirit who enables Zechariah to make the truth claim, to prophesy it. Now, let's look at his claim. This is how he starts the truth claim. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's visited his people and redeemed them. So that word praise there in Latin, that's the word benedictus. Okay? So the Spirit, he's enabling Zechariah to begin with this benedictus, this word of praise. And he identifies the Lord by this name, the God of Israel. And so from the start, he's connecting the song with the ancient past. Zechariah says that, that this God visited his people and redeemed them. It's a very, very intriguing word here, visited. Very intriguing. It's really important that we catch this word. But what does it mean? Think about this. What does it mean for God to visit? Is it just like a friend stopping by? Is that what it means for God to visit? Uh, seeing someone you haven't seen in a while? Is it a short stay, like he's in the guest room? What does that mean for God to visit? Grab lunch together, go to Starbucks. What does it mean for God to visit? From a theological perspective, seeing it the way God sees it, right? For God to visit is certainly to draw people near to him. But this drawing people near or this God visit has specific purposes, and Zechariah, he's going to give us a laundry list of them here. He says that one of them is redemption. That is to pull us out of destruction and to liberate us from the clutches of evil. But that's not all. As Zechariah continues his canticle. He's singing about God's visitation. And he says this, he says, He raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I really, really want you to get this. Visitation of God includes raising up this Davidic horn of salvation that sounds very biblically, like biblical, right? It sounds very scriptural, churchy. And it also says, notice the end here, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of haters. Oh, I really, really like that. When you're willing to put yourself out there, okay? When you're willing to speak up. When you're willing to stick up for yourself. When you're willing to stick up for others. When you're willing to be brutally honest about yourself and others and about situations. When you're willing to truth tell. When you're willing to own up to things. When you're willing to offer critique when you're willing to lead and you're willing to take risks, when you're willing to innovate, when you're willing to hold firm to the faith that's been passed on to us for centuries, when you're willing to not let people walk on you, when you're willing to have some backbone, people are going to choose to be your enemies. And people are going to hate you for it. They'd much rather you just shut up and be quiet and go with the flow, right? I know this very, very, very well. Um, when you stand up and you speak up and you don't back down and you don't keep quiet, but people want you to, oh, it makes them upset. It makes people upset. When you're willing to walk faithfully and pledge your allegiance to God in a culture that's skeptical of Him, and that, that maybe tries to deny him and his scripture, people will become enemies and haters. But Jesus comes, and despite that, he offers us salvation. And notice that salvation here, this is what I really want you to get. It isn't just this internal thing, okay? It isn't just an internal spiritual sort of thing. Oh, I got saved internally, I'm good. That's this part of it. But it's actually, the text says, the song says, it's actually being saved and spared, delivered from enemies and haters. Amen? Come on. Amen. Right? We often just think of salvation in terms of like sin, like deliverance from sin. 
But the Old Testament, which is what Zechariah is drawing from, gives us this much broader picture that flows over into the New Testament. So part of God's visitation includes redemption and salvation, saving from our enemies and haters. And I don't know about you, that's good news to me. Because I know some haters. <laughs> Zechariah, he's packed a lot about God's visitation into the song. He's continuing and he says this, another aspect of it is to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. We can add these things to the list of what a visitation from God includes, right? Mercy. Oh, I like that. Mercy. One of those church words again. Mercy. We've all heard that. Sounds. What is mercy? Like if I asked you to define that, what is mercy? How might we define it? Here's how I define it. Mercy is God's loving disposition toward us. Okay. Um, it's God's loving disposition toward us as individuals. His mercy is not His love, okay? We need to distinguish between the two, but it's His loving disposition, His heart posture toward us. So I can love someone, right? I can love someone, but not have a loving disposition toward them, not have a merciful disposition toward them. So again, mercy is God's loving disposition, His posture toward us. And one of the main ways, if not the main way, that God shows us that is through His Son's sacrifice and the Spirit's indwelling. So when God visits, as Zechariah notes, it's a visit of mercy. It's God coming forth and saying, hey, I love you. I love you. And I have a loving disposition toward you. My disposition is one of mercy. And I want to redeem you. I want to save you from your enemies. I want to save you from your haters. I want to save you from yourself. And I want to save you from sin. And Zechariah is saying that God in this context is doing just that in Jesus. Who's about to become incarnate soon after this is spoken. And even more, this will provide the redemption and salvation and mercy to all of the ancestors who preceded Jesus. You know, one of the questions that I often get is, what happens to people who never heard about Jesus? Or never get the chance to hear about Jesus? Like, do they just go to hell? Like, what, what happens to them if we're thinking of hell as just a bad place? Right? So the, the, the common go-to is something, what about people like in the Amazon rainforest who have never heard, they're in these tribes, and they never get the chance to hear about Jesus? What about them? What happens to them? Well, in a way, it's similar to everybody who preceded Jesus. They never had a chance to hear about Jesus, right? So a good Wesleyan response, a good Nazarene response, which I think is the best response, is one, that's up to God and not me. <laughs> this is a really good answer. And two, God is just, and he will judge each person according to the light that they had. That's what a good and just God would do, right? So that goes for everybody who preceded Jesus. And that goes for people in the Amazon. That goes for every single one of us sitting here. God is good and just. He will judge each of us according to the light that we had. Another aspect of God's visitation is to help us, uh, to remember, that's to remind us of the holy covenant that he, he swore to Abraham. You and I are included in that. So you can see um, that Jesus is coming. His visitation is good news in a lot of ways. Redemption, salvation from enemies and haters, mercy to witness God's loving disposition toward us and to help remind us of this ancient covenant that we're all part of. The promise that was promised us. You see, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that we typically hear all this stuff at Christmas time. Uh, we hear about the manger, and that's good. Um, you know, we, we hear about uh, the magi, and that's good. But we need to be thinking beyond the sentiment of the holiday. What is the significance of Christmas? Zechariah's nailing it. What's the significance of God visiting us in Jesus? Yeah. We're kind of getting to the heart of that. And Zechariah keeps saying, and he says, also, to deliver us from the hand of our enemies, sounds very familiar, and to enable us to serve him without fear 
and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And so God's visitation to us brings with it rescue. Rescue from enemies. It's very similar language to what we just read about being saved from our enemies. But this deliverance, I think he actually carries a little bit of nuance with it. It's not just being spared. So to be delivered is to not just be spared. It's to be spared with a purpose, you see. To be spared with a purpose. And in the same breath, Zechariah tells us what the purpose is. To enable us to serve him. And then he gives three qualifiers. Fearlessly is the first of those. That's a good question. You serve fearlessly. Because Jesus is coming and the sending of the Spirit has given you the opportunity to do just that, to serve Him fearlessly. This week I was reading about um, Mitsuo Fukida. Does anybody know that name? No. Mitsuo Fukida. I was reading about it this week because this is a week where some of us were reflecting on Pearl Harbor. right? And it was about just that. Mitsuo Fukida was the flight leader who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. About a mile from here. On 740, at 7.40 a.m. on December 7th, 1941. He was the commander of the Imperial Japanese Navy Service, Mitsuo Fukida. And uh, he was the head, the, the, the lead guy in the first wave of bombers on Pearl Harbor. And as he approached, he sent up a green flare from his plane, which signaled to all the planes behind him were good to go on the attack. And he was also the one who later ordered the radio operator to send the message back to Japan, Tora, 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 to let them know that he and his team had followed through with a successful surprise attack. There's a lot to this guy, Fukita's story, including a handful of near-death experiences, really, really interesting life story to read about. But there were these couple of instances in Mitsuo Fukita's life that really just hit me this week. Uh, one was his encounter with a woman named Peggy Colville. Uh, Fukita had heard of her story and about how she was a Japanese prisoner during the war, and so were her parents. Both her mom and dad were killed. They were missionaries in one of the Japanese internment camps. Yet, instead of wanting revenge, the warrior's code, um, she rejected it. Instead, Peggy Colville offered compassion. And Fukita learned that this was the case because she was a Christian. So he began looking into Christianity. And while he was looking into it, Fukita had another encounter with this guy named Jacob DeShazer. And DeShazer was a bombardier who participated in what's known as the Doolittle Raid. It was a raid on Tokyo, the bombing of Tokyo. This is where things get really, really interesting. DeShazer's plane went down in the midst of this raid on Tokyo, and he was captured by the Japanese, and he became an American POW. But while he was in the prison camp, uh, DeShazer had an encounter with God. And soon after, Fukita and DeShazer crossed paths. And in September of 1949, because of that, because of what Fukita had witnessed in Peggy Colville and Jacob DeShazer, he converted to Christianity. The man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor became a Christian. What's astounding is that Mitsuo Fukita went on to establish the Captain Fukita Evangelistic Association in Japan. And he began traveling full-time and speaking about his conversion story. And in 1959, he wrote an uh, autobiography titled, From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. And in it, he said this. He said, quote, I remember the thrill that was mine when in one of my first evangelistic meetings, I led my first soul to Christ in America. And he was one of my own Japanese countrymen. So on the one hand, right, these sort of stories, they can be a little hard to hear, right? On the other hand, they're completely amazing. They're beautifully scandalous because the gospel is beautifully scandalous like that. This man did a horrible thing. And he was found by Jesus afterward and then spent the rest of his life serving Jesus fearlessly. 
Only God can make that kind of thing happen. Only God. And when God visits us, He does, just as Zechariah said, that He enables us to serve Him fearlessly, without fear, but not just that. Also to serve Him in holiness. To live in such a way that through our holy living, we draw people to Jesus. To live in a way that's distinct. To live in a way that keeps us in close proximity to God. So that's what holiness is. Now some people... Some people have the wrong idea about what holiness is. Holiness is not a state that we, we live in. Okay? Holiness is about proximity. So if you had to define holiness today, maybe you could just do holiness equals proximity. Um, we don't exist in a state of holiness. We exist in proximity. To God, right? God is the epicenter of holiness. And so the nearer we are to God, you see, the more holy we become. And the farther we are from God, the less holy we become. So as Nazarenes, as Wesleyans, this is in our blood. This is like our thing, holiness, right? This is our distinctive holiness. We are a holiness people. That's how we've been called for generations. A holiness people. We are a people welcoming holiness, seeking sanctification. And God's visit doesn't just enable us to serve Him in holiness, but also righteousness. It's another one of those churchy Christian words, righteousness. But what is it? What is righteousness? Simply put, we could say it's being right with God. That's what righteousness is. Being in right standing with God. Perhaps a bit more theologically, it's yielding our lives to God's covenant that we might be in right standing with Him. That's what righteousness is. But you see, we can't, we can't do that ourselves, yeah? Uh, God's visit to us in Christ and the sending of the Spirit is what enables us to be holy and righteous in proximity, near to God, and in right standing with God. We can't do that on our own. Is that good news? <laughs> Um, Jesus, His first coming, His incarnation, His Christmas coming is one that brings redemption, salvation from sin, salvation from enemies and haters, deliverance for a purpose so that we might serve God fearlessly in holiness and in righteousness. All this comes from Jesus' visit to us. It's great news. Now, after Zechariah sings all of this, the good priest that he is, switches his gears slightly mid-song. And he starts singing about his son, John. And here's how he talks about John. He says, And you, my child, John, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So he identifies John as this prophet of God, the Most High. Again, a prophet isn't a predictor of the future. Get rid of that, right? That's not what a prophet... A prophet is someone who makes truth claims on God's behalf. That's what John is going to do, too just like his daddy. He's going to speak truth on behalf of God, and he's going to do it in this role as a forerunner for Jesus. So you remember, the emperors and kings during this time, they had forerunners. And whenever the ro these royal officials would be heading into a city, the forerunner, they would go ahead of the emperors and the royal officials, and they would go into the streets, and they'd say, you know, clear your apple carts, you know, make the, make the road straight, make the roads clean. The royal official, the king is coming. We get a good picture of that at the beginning of Mark's gospel. So John is going to go ahead of Jesus, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to prepare his way and speak truth to everybody about his identity as a Messiah. And he's going to do so to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. You see that? Here's Zechariah. Has John expanding on that Old Testament idea of salvation, being saved from enemies and haters, and now it's also extended to sin. See, salvation is way bigger than we think, guys. It doesn't include just this internal thing and us as individuals. It's physical in many ways. It's being saved from enemies, being saved from haters, being delivered for a purpose to, so that we can serve God fearlessly and in holiness and in righteousness. It does include forgiveness of sins, but it's way bigger than that. We're made and meant for so much more than just that. 
Because we read the rest of the New Testament. Salvation, this is amazing. It extends to all of creation. The oceans and the land, the animals. Salvation is way bigger than we evangelicals often think. It's way bigger than just being forgiven for sin and delivered from that. It's huge. (laughs) It's about deliverance and renewal so that we might have greater proximity to God and bring other people and other things into greater proximity to God. And there's more. John's going to tell people about salvation and forgiveness because of the tender mercy of our God. What's mercy? It's God's disposition of love toward us. And as Zechariah continues singing about this, he says something I absolutely love, guys. He says that God's tender mercy will come in a very, very specific way. Look at this. This is the end here. That's going to come by which the day spring will visit us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. You see that word visit there? We saw that earlier, right at the start, right? So you remember what the word inclusio is, right? It's when a a story or a poem or something starts with one word and it ends with the same word or starts with one idea and theme and it ends with the same idea and theme. And the idea is that it does that in order to frame everything in between in terms of that word or idea or theme. And so Zechariah, he begins his song with the word visit and he ends his song with the word visit so that you and I think of everything in between in light of that visit or visitation of God. It's his way of making a point that God's visitation to us in Jesus encompasses all of the things that he just sung about. And notice he says, the day spring will visit us from heaven, from the sky. That's beautiful. And there's so much more here. Thankfully, Genesis has prepared us to understand this. There's something more going on here than people realize. And I want to explain this to you. So in our study of Genesis, we've been talking about how um, we've we've repeatedly heard about people moving east. Yes? Yes, we've heard that over and over and over. What does it mean to move east? What does that mean? Thank you. Very good. Better than your Luke-Acts response. Um, uh, Yes, to move east means to move away from God. Okay, that's really... I want you to hold on to that. Remember, holiness has to do with proximity, right? Um, So if you're sanctified, if you're being made holy, then you're moving close to God. But if you're moving away from Him, then you're becoming unholy. There's never like a stagnant in the middle. You're either moving toward Him or moving away. You're in close proximity or moving further proximity. So to move east is to move in the direction of unholiness. To move west is to move in the direction of holiness. It's going to make sense in a minute, I promise you. Here's the thing, the word dayspring here. In the Greek language, this word is anatole, which means east. So you could translate that as by which the east will visit us. That's kind of a weird thing to do. Um, It makes sense, though, because the sun rises in the east, okay? The S-U-N rises in the east, And Jesus, he's described as the sun or the spring of day, the day spring, the sunrise. He's like the S-U-N, the sun. He will be born, he will be raised up, and he will be raised from the dead. And so if Jesus is the day spring, the sun, and the sun is in the east, then how is moving east moving away from God? How does that make sense? Isn't that heading toward God? No. Here's why. You have to remember that in the ancient world, they weren't thinking of a round globe. They weren't thinking of a ball, a sphere. So the idea, right, um, we we know that uh, in the ancient world, if you go traveling east and you keep traveling east, you just keep traveling east. You don't come back full circle. They didn't think about it like that. Once you start east and you keep going east, you're just going east for the rest of your life. You're not going to end up back where you started like we think right? Um, That's how they thought about it. To them, you could just move east forever. There was no end to east. East doesn't end. And so the sun rises in the east. Now, hang with me right here. 
The sun rises in the east. But it travels, once it rises, it travels west. You, you following me here? So if you travel west as the sun's moving west, you're always traveling with the sun. Or in good Christianese, you're always walking in the light. So as the sun rises, if you travel east then, you're always moving away from the sun as it's going west. And you're walking in darkness. You're going toward the darkness. Right? Oh, I love this. I love this. So you keep traveling east. You remain in darkness away from God who dwells in light because the sun has already risen. So an ancient thought to get back to the sun, right? To catch up to it. You got to turn around. You got to repent. Go the other direction and start heading west. Head west, young man, right? You got That's what scripture means when it talks about walking in the light. It's following the sun west. That's the analogy or metaphor. And here's something really, really, really cool. I think it's really cool. The tabernacle in the Old Testament, the precursor to the temple, as well as the temple itself, it was set up in the same exact way. The doorway or the entrance of the temple faces east so that when the sunrise, the light shines in it, so to speak. And then as you enter into the temple to go through the three rooms, you're moving west toward God. Right? So the priests in the temple, they always moved in a westward motion or fashion, symbolizing walking in the light. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 103, he says, our sins are forgiven as far as the east is to the west. So we're moving toward God. Luke tells us that when Jesus entered the city in Jerusalem to begin the passion, he entered from the east, implying that on his way up to the cross, it's westward movement and motion, right? So what's the point of this? When Jesus visits us in the incarnation and is later raised, he is the day spring. He marks the dawning of a new day. And as Zechariah ends his song, he says, the day spring will visit us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So Jesus is coming as a human shines light on us and for us. It's meant to light our way out of death, out of being a culture of death, into being a people of life and light. And later on in Luke's gospel, in in chapter 7, verse 16, we read about this young man in the city of Nain, and he's raised by Jesus. And when the people see it, they describe it as a visit, same exact word from God. Same word we get twice from Zechariah. God's visit also brings healing, we learn later in the story. But something sad, something really sad happens in Luke. In Luke 19, 43 and 44, after Jesus walks into Jerusalem, listen to what he says to the people who reject him. Listen, he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Sounds like the opposite of salvation that Zechariah is saying about deliverance from enemies. Listen, they will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's visitation to you. Same word, visitation. So not being aware of and responding appropriately to God's visit to us in Jesus, results in devastation rather than salvation. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound good. I'd rather be in the light. I'd rather live and walk in the light that guides our feet so that we can be peacemakers and live in peace. That sounds like insanely good news to me. Because I want peace. Y'all want peace? I want peace. I want peace in my life. And there's a sense in which we don't get peace unless we're bold enough to be peacemakers. Living in peace, felony, requires being peacemakers sometimes. And in order to do that, in order to be peacemakers sometimes, we got to deal with some tough stuff sometimes. That means we have to occasionally get bold and get honest and vulnerable. And I think we often don't realize that when we do that, God can do some serious stuff. I was reading this week, too, about another historical event. It happened in the 1850s in North Ireland. It was called the Ulster Revival. 
And this is, I just want to read you some of what I read about this. It's so encouraging. Um, it says this, In the spring of 1855, a young man began a prayer meeting in his home to pray for the unconverted in his neighborhood. And the idea grew in small pockets of concerned believers in Ulster got, uh, began gathering for prayer and earnest practice. While faithful ministers still preached the gospel and a few parishioners met to pray for the pastor and the conversion of the lost, little change occurred for several years. And in March of 1859, in the town of Balimena, a young man threw himself down in the public square and cried out for God's mercy. James McQuilkin and his fellow prayers, just six miles away, invited everyone they knew to join them at a local church for a prayer meeting on the evening of March 14th. And hundreds of people responded. And the meeting was so big it had to move into the street, onto the street outside. And the gospel went forth. And conviction of sin overcame the multitude. And the first spiritual fruits of what became known as the Great Ulster Revival were brought to faith. And as with all true revivals, the effects were felt instantly in the churches and society at large. All across Ulster, from Belfast to Londonderry, churches were packed and had to embark on building extensions. Pubs and distilleries were forced to close as alcoholism declined. The jails in many places remained empty. Families returned to biblical patterns, and converts remained steadfast. Pastors estimated that well more than 100,000 people came to faith in Christ and joined the churches. And here's how one person wrote about it in their journal or something like that. He said, this, the week which began May 17th can never be forgotten. When the great outpouring came, worldly men were silent with an indefinite fear. And Christians found themselves borne onward in the current with scarce time for any feeling but the outpouring of conviction that a great revival had come at last. Careless men were bowed in unaffected earnestness and sobbed like children. Drunkards and both and boasting blasphemers were awed into solemnity and silence. Sabbath school teachers and scholars became seekers of Christ together, and languid believers were stirred up to unusual exertion. Every day, many were hopefully converted, passing through an ordeal of conviction more or less severe to realize their great deliverance and to throw themselves with every energy into the work of warning others or of leading them to the Lord. Every evening the churches were crowded, and family worship became almost universal. Part of the dinner hour was devoted to singing and prayer, and the sound from numerous groups of worshipers could be heard from afar. Long-neglected Bibles came into general use. Isn't that amazing? Here's my hard question for you. Do you believe that can happen here? Like, really believe? Maybe that's what we should ask for this Christmas. You want to pray with that, for that with me. A revival that starts right here in this tiny family, the tiny Ohana, the bridge. A revival in our community that starts right here. A revival on our island that starts right here. By the way that we think and speak and live. By the way we are church. The way we do church. A revival that leads to families and homes looking like they did in Ulster at that time. When God visits us, that's what can happen. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you think it could never really happen. Like it's just a story. Let me go back to how I started this message. I told you the title was, If Can't, Can't. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but let me explain. I mentioned last week that a canticle is basically just a short song. In particular, in Luke 1 to 2, there are four canticles, short songs. But we could just say it this way. Uh, in Luke 1 to 2, we find four people canting, four people singing. We have Mary's Magnificat, and we have Zechariah's Benedictus. This, this word cant, well, is a verb. It's a Latin word. It's actually where we get our word chant from it's our word of the week can't very very simple there are a lot of definitions that we could boil it down to just to sing i like the definition that defines canting as speaking in a sing-song fashion again like a chant to can't is to sing 
in other words. So the bottom line this week, super simple, y'all. If can't, can't. In other words, when you feel like you can't do something or we can't do something, just sing. Right? Can't. Notice there's no apostrophe in the second can't. That's what makes it different. When you feel like you can't live up to your role in Christ, can't. Sing. Like Zechariah, sing a prayer. Can't. Can't a prayer. Right? That's my charge to you this week. Very simple. Let's be a church of can't. <laughs> Let's be a church of canting. Let's begin to sing a prayer to God. Asking Him to bring revival and to start it here. To visit us and start it here. Let's open ourselves up to letting Him start with us. This week, be like Zechariah. Write a prayer. Write a song to God. Let's be a church of can't. Let this be a week of can'ts. I'll get us started. Here's my can't. My speaking in a sing-song fashion. Kind of similar to how I ended last week. God, the world says I'm foolish, that my beliefs are kind of middle schoolish, elementary, maybe uncoolish. Can I stop and call bullish? Stand up proud and speak out loud and open up my full fists because I want surpassing peace and I want it to the fullest. Take the petty weeds of my life, yank and pull them, unwind and unspool them. It's Advent and my path is lit so I know where I'm going. It's where you're going. Made a way for me to walk holy, to be in right standing, to, to draw near to thee. So when the road is windy and the trail is slant, when I feel I'm sliding and society says I can't, I can't. I sing prayers with deep rhythm that you bring. I can. I chant. I seek revival for this island. Let us start with these clean hands. Let us be the bridge to renewal in these Hawaiian lands. Let the Spirit start a spark in every woman, child, and man. Let us wear on our foreheads, God, your brand. A new heart, mind. Let's understand. Can't. Pray tell. Pray sing. Let's be a Christmas people full of good tidings. A gospel so exciting, shining bright. Light homes with lighting and peace with no fighting. A people without the drama who give pause like a comma. And to correct Mr. Obama, yes, we can't. And by can't, we mean sing. Yes, we sing. That's our power, our source, our silver lining. For in Christ, if can't, can't. Amen? Amen. Stand and let me bless you. You would turn your palms upright and receive this Advent blessing. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go. And when you feel like you can't, can't. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.